Markham, Richmond Hill, Vaughan. From everywhere you are. Aurora, Newmarket, East Willemberry. This is The Feed. Georgina, King, Whitchurch, Stovall. The Feed is York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to the people that live and work here. You're listening to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Canadian hockey mums speak out. A tribute to the animals in war and Scouts Canada honouring Ryan Reynolds. But we begin with the state of COVID. Here we go again. It is the middle of October and no surprise, you know, we've been warned about this. COVID cases are on the rise as are hospitalizations. And there's a new kid in town, BQ 1.1, a coronavirus subvariant that many experts feel could drive a new wave in Europe and here in North America by the end of November, potentially emerging as the dominant variant this fall and winter. So what do we know about BQ 1.1? Let's bring in Professor Ray Dianandon, an epidemiologist, associate professor at Ottawa University and a COVID-19 science communicator. Thank you, Professor Dianandon, for joining us on the feed. Is it okay if I call you Ray through this interview? That is your name. (laughs) Absolutely. And speaking of names, there's a new kid in town, a new kid on the block, BQ 1.1. What does it stand for and what, what is it about? Well, speaking of names, this one has a fairly ominous name. They call it Cerberus, which is the name of the three-headed dog that guards the gates of Hades in Greek mythology. That's a little scary. And DQ mm-hmm. 1.1 is actually the child of another subvariant called DQ 1, and its name is Typhon. So these names keep on coming, and it shouldn't be that scary, but it kind of is sometimes. The thing about DQ 1.1 that has a lot of virologists nervous is that it has three mutations on the spike protein, and not only does that make it a really contagious uh, subvariant, in fact, possibly the second most contagious one currently circulating, but also it seems to em- evade the immunity offered by our best antibody treatments. So right now we have a suite of antibody treatments that are used primarily by immunocompromised people who can't be vaccinated. And if this variant is not effective against any of those treatments, well, that's a dire predicament for a lot of people who rely on those treatments. And what about the efficacy of the bivalent uh, vaccine that, that people are getting into their arms in Canada right now? Does it evade its efficacy? It's a very good question and something that people are working on. So right now, in Canada, we have two bivalent vaccines. We have one that's tuned to BA1, that's the one made by Moderna, and we just authorized one that's tuned to BA5, that's the one made by Pfizer. And BA5 is now the dominant subvariant in North America. However, it's being rapidly displaced by these new subvariants, BQ1.1 among them. The thing about BQ1.1 is that it's a descendant of BA5, not of BA1. So it strikes me that maybe I'm a little bit hopeful that the Pfizer BA5 tuned bivalent might be effective against this subvariant. We don't know yet, and so that has to be a priority for the lab people to figure that out. And the public, you know, we're willing to roll up our arms, and we're some of us are grateful that we've got this opportunity in Canada to have free vaccinations against COVID-19, but we're not sure whether we should be saying to wherever we're getting our vaccination, I want Pfizer or I want Moderna. I mean, th- therein lies a real issue. Should we just get take what we can get? Yeah, that's a tough question. I think, yeah, you should take what you should get, but it comes down to what your individual risk scenario is. How prevalent is the disease in your community? How vulnerable are you? How, 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 how far it's been since your last booster? If it hasn't been that long since your last booster, then it might be worthwhile waiting until you get a BA5 2-in-1. But frankly, the advantage offered by a booster, the lion's share of that advantage is being boosted by anything even the original vaccine. 
So the additional advantage offered by Omicron is a few, uh, by the Omicron contingent of the vaccine, is a few percentage points more. So um, most of the population benefit will be in being boosted by anything. But if you have a choice, get the BA5 one. And, you know, prevention is key, but we need to understand more about BQ1.1. Is it more transmissible, more easily uh, transmitted from one person to another? Is Does it make a person sicker than some of the other subvariants or, 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 you know, right from the very beginning, COVID-19 and Alpha and Delta and you name it? What what? How do you describe it? Well, it looks to be more contagious. So the doubling time is about a week. That's mm. the number of uh, days it takes for the uh, proportion of cases in the population to double. And in Canada right now, the hotspot seems to be Quebec, but it's growing in the U.S. Uh, fairly quickly. About 10% of U.K. cases are BQ1.1. Maybe um, we're seeing it in uh, Belgium and France as well. 8 to 10% of New York State is BQ1.1. But in terms of seriousness, again, we don't know. However, some early data suggests that it seems to have a, a more likelihood of giving you uh, diarrhea and vomiting, so gastrointestinal disorders. And maybe there is some concern that maybe it's more trophic towards the lower lung, which means that you know more likely to have lung infections. We haven't seen that since um, before Omicron. So if that's the case, I'd be a little concerned. Um, but again, we, we don't know yet. Um, we're waiting for data. You know, it's interesting, these variants and subvariants, they don't know any borders. So you talk about the, its uh, appearance, uh, BQ1.1, in Quebec. What's to stop it from coming into Ontario, and, and how will it, and what will it look like when it gets here? It's probably already here, yeah. and nothing's going to stop it getting here, and it's going to come here, in my opinion. So what would stop it coming here is mm-hmm. if another variant... Uh, takes over, <laughs> keeps it out. So nothing good will keep it out, uh, only more bad things. So it looks like we're going to be colonized by BQ1.1. That's my prediction. There's another uh, big baddie out there in Asia called XBB, which Jeez. is even more contagious. It may pop its head in here as well. Um, but I fully expect uh, us to be colonized relatively quickly. Um, and by the way, we already have been colonized in Ontario. It takes some time for the cases to mount. Many experts are suggesting that BQ1.1 will drive the winter wave. And it sounds as if that's not when, not if, excuse me, that it's when. So it's almost as if it is understood that we are going to have a winter wave. Is that right? I mean, there's just no getting around it. Well, nothing's guaranteed, but it does seem that way. If I were a betting man, I would say it's, it's likely. The question is, um, does the wave, has it been decoupled from serious outcomes? Yeah. Now, the decoupling from deaths, I think, has happened. We're not in the same scenario we were in March of 2020. Cases will rise, but the deaths will not rise at the same rate. However, since this disease is so contagious, more people will become infected. Therefore, we're probably going to see more people with some serious outcomes like hospitalization and death. The individual risk profile will not change, but the population profile will probably get worse. Ray, how is this being tracked at this point? You know, we're not getting daily case counts. We're not, we're getting, you know, little bits and pieces here and there. We understand that wastewater surveillance is going on, but how is it being monitored in Ontario? And this would be BQ 1.1 or any other ugly subvariant that rears its head. That's a very good question. Now, historically, we have community testing, and you just take a sample of that community test, and you do an additional laboratory screening to determine what proportion are certain variants. That's being done still, but the number of community tests is so diminished, and the sample is not random, that it's hard to get a sense. It is possible to do this on wastewater testing. I'm not sure if it's being done yet, but definitely we were testing you know, wastewater for other kinds of variants. It's a matter of 
retasking the machinery to test for uh, the new subvariants. I, I suspect that will be the case as well. But as a result of all the things you mentioned, we are flying a little bit blind. We have less data now than we mm-hmm. did at the peak of the pandemic, and that's not a good way to manage public health. Non-scientists like myself figure that every time a virus mutates that it loses strength. Wrong. I know that I'm very wrong about that, am I not? (laughs) Yeah, it's not true. It's not true at all. Uh, The assumption there is that the evolutionary pressures are compelling an organism to move towards not killing its host. Well, there are other ways to make your life miserable without killing you. And it comes down to... Does it take long enough to kill you to still allow you to pass the disease on? If that's the case, then there's no disadvantage in killing you, evolutionarily speaking. There are many cases, uh, historically, where diseases have become more virulent and more lethal, not less over time. So it's a mistake to rely upon evolution to get us out of this. Will it ever stop mutating? And I guess I go back to the coronavirus, to COVID-19, and all of its variants and subvariants. but will it ever stop mutating? It comes down to how much transmission is allowed to happen. Mm. So long as people are becoming infected, the opportunity for mutation arises. Now, with the flu vaccine, every year we see mutations for this very reason. A lot of transmission is happening. A lot of genetic material is being swapped between animals, humans, etc. With this disease, if we get a pan-coronavirus vaccine that's good for all variants and get enough people globally vaccinated, then the opportunity for transmission comes down dramatically, and the opportunity for evolution comes down dramatically as well. However, the odds of that happening, we'll see. We'll see. It'll take a couple of years probably for that to happen. Uh, My prediction is, no, we're, we're going to see mutation happen, and we're going to have this disease with us for a long time, resembling the flu in its mutation profile, but being more serious than the flu every season. So how do we protect ourselves? And let's first of all talk about the vaccine that is available right now. Well, uh, in my opinion, we should get the bivalent booster if you're eligible and get it as soon as you can. Also, some tools are good against all variants. These tools include masks, ventilation, staying home when you're sick, all that good stuff. Right, so um, these physical barriers work against everything. Ventilation is something we don't talk enough about. I have a portable CO2 monitor that I take into environments where I have to be unmasked, like giving a lecture or something like that, and that tells me how much fresh air is in the room. And that's a good monitor to determine you know, how, quote-unquote, safe an environment is. Um, do we have to live like this forever? No, I don't think so, just until we have enough population immunity to get the threat down to something manageable. We're not there yet, but we will get there eventually. What's your best advice? We're, we're smack in the middle of fall, and we're, we're marching toward winter in a couple of months, and a lot of people are quite fearful of what is to come. What's your best advice on how to cope with this, how to protect, how to enjoy life, but also how to uh, keep these variants and subvariants at bay? Live your life, absolutely. Like, uh, go to your social events, see your family, hug your loved ones, etc. But be vaccinated. Yeah, my, my philosophy is get back to the max. So mm-hmm. whatever you're eligible for, get it. Encourage your loved ones to do so. Try to associate with people who don't have the disease. Use rapid tests to your best ability. They do work. Um, they, they use, you know, not to the, their greatest efficacy. Uh, speaking of which, there is some concern that BQ1.1 may not turn up as readily on a rapid test as other variants. We don't know that yet. But it turns up enough that it's still useful. So use a rapid test to get yourself out of isolation. And uh, if you have symptoms of any kind, try not to socialize. 
and try not to socialize with people who have symptoms of any kind. These small steps aren't perfect, but layered on top of each other reduces your risk profile dramatically. This is about reducing probability, not eliminating risk entirely. Very well put, Professor Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor, Ottawa University. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you. The business community may still be recovering from COVID, but could there be another storm on the horizon? Kevin Frankish with The Outlook. A quick economics lesson for you. The cause of a recession is 50% technical and 50% emotional. Many economists are warning of a recession next year. It could be particularly tough here in Canada. However, a new survey from KPMG Canada paints a picture of small and medium businesses that seem to be prepared for this. And being prepared is very important from a technical standpoint and an emotional one, making some sense of all this. Dino Infanti, uh, Partner National Leader Enterprise Tax with KPMG. Hi, Dino. Hello, Kevin. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, love having you here. Um, tell me a little bit. So so I just made a statement. Uh, you know, we, we think a recession has to do with GDP in this quarter and that quarter, but there's very much an emotional uh, element to recession, inflation, anything like that. Right. Small and medium-sized businesses uh, that we surveyed, there was some 500-plus uh, small and medium-sized businesses are quite confident. You know, you talked about, uh, you know, the emotional element, but uh, the small and medium-sized businesses are quite confident. I mean, look, they experienced the pandemic and learned many lessons to weather that storm. So uh, certainly business changed substantially since the pandemic, and uh, they understand the implications. They're resilient. They're ready, they're ready to weather it. And this isn't just, you know, just over 50%. This is 83%, according to this, say they're optimistic about their company's growth over the next few years. That's a lot. It is. It's significant. And, uh, you know, they're certainly confident about their industry and sector. Now, look, you know, um, you could further dissect that into the short term and long term, long term being three years and short term being the next, uh, you know, 12 months. But, um, you know, there's some actions that the small and medium-sized businesses indicate that they're going to take. For example, you know, uh, put a freeze on hiring, um, and uh, but recognize that uh, in order to achieve the growth, uh, they need they need talent. So uh, it's just the careful eye on cash and costs, really, in the short term. I want to get back to that in just a moment, but but you, of course, mentioned having having come through this pandemic and the lockdowns. Do you think some of this confidence comes from the fact that maybe a lot of these small and medium business owners say, hey, listen, we just came through two years of hell. This can't be any worse. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's, that's, you know, I kind of chuckle at that because it, 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 you're right. It was two years of uh, a chaotic environment in which these businesses have been operating in. And, and to your point, they learned a lot uh, and many lessons uh, and weathered that storm to the pandemic. And uh, and their view is what might be in front of them, uh, uh, perhaps recessionary times, their view is, I got this. And when it comes to the labor market, 56% say they lack people with the skills 
to manage any strategic or operational rollout that uh, that is required, and that includes digital transformation as well. So, you know, th- this is something that they're already dealing with a labor market that is stretched thin. Unemployment is yeah. a very important aspect of, of any recession. Is this going to be different? Yeah, well, you know, as I said earlier, I mean, certainly there's these the short-term measures that um, these businesses have indicated they're going to undertake. So what, 30% implemented a short-term hiring freeze, 40% are looking at uh, plans to implement a hiring freeze. But as I said, you know, 77% of them plan to increase headcount in the next three years to drive growth. Now, the challenge is, is is finding that right balance between the short-term and long-term in order to weather the storm and uh, come out of this in, in a positive way. To your point, digital, of course, they've uh, a significant amount of money was spent on digital transformation. And... Um, you know, training up employees, leveraging those investments uh, are critical in order to uh, see through this. We've, we've always been led to believe that Disney and Coca-Cola basically own the world, and uh, they're really the only ones that matter. So we're talking about big corporations and big business. How important is small and medium business still to this day in driving our economy? Yeah, look, uh, small and medium-sized businesses are certainly different from large corporations. Um, you know, they're the backbone to the Canadian economy. You know, things changed dramatically since the pandemic. They understand the implications and challenges that business bring. They're resilient, you know, and the steps the steps they took then and the steps they're taking now will really shape our future of the Canadian economy. Am I right in saying that if we could, uh, you know, we, we wanted to support local during the pandemic, if we could continue to support local, would this make any any difference? Well, I, I think, you know, a fundamental of uh, supporting local is is, uh, is a good measure. Support, you know, your local businesses, support the Canadian economy, and that's good for everybody. What should small and medium businesses be doing now in order to prepare for what, may or is going to happen next year? Right. Um, Certainly uh, boosting productivity, right? What does that mean? Focusing on margin, focusing on profitable business lines, um, operational inefficiencies, right? Where are the inefficiencies in their business? Let's streamline those. Let's become more efficient. Um, You know, complexities, remove the complexities out of the business and uh, simplify things, manage costs. And of course, of all, keep a close eye on cash flow, right? Cash flow, cash flow is critical in order to see through this, and uh, and uh, and ultimately, um, where those things are being implemented, it comes with potential growth by way of acquisitions, right? You know, you got a strong business that's doing all these good things, has, has good cash flow. Um, Look, inorga- inorganic growth acquisitions at favorable prices might be part of their growth strategy. All right. Uh, the uh, report is from KPMG. I've been speaking with Dino Infanti, partner, national leader, enterprise tax with KPMG. Thank you so much for this. Thank you very much, Kevin, for having me. Hockey Mums on Hockey Canada. That story when we come back. Do you have a story idea for the feed? 
Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. Are the changes to the board at Hockey Canada enough? Jim Lang with Canadian Hockey Moms and where the local game goes from here. Well, the last few months has seen uh, an unbelievable turn of events for Hockey Canada, something that shocked everyone from coast to coast, from hockey fans to people within hockey and even our prime minister and all politicians. And finally, after the last few days, Scott Smith, the CEO of Hockey Canada, and the entire board of directors did what they could only do, step down, and now they have to rebuild from square one to talk more about it. Thrilled to be joined by Teresa Bailey from Canadian Hockey Mums. Teresa, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? Good. I I mean, I know as more stories came out and rolled out and we heard more things about slush funds and secret payouts, I was more and more disgusted. How, how, was you, how did it affect you as this thing unfolded in the great investigative journalism went on over the last few months in this country? Well, it's been interesting, maybe from my perspective and the community of moms that I'm, I'm with as well, where initially, of course, we were disturbed and disgusted, but... Also, I think I was trying to wait to hear if there was something I didn't understand or something that could maybe explain why things had happened that way. And initially, everyone was very afraid to speak up because we were all sort of waiting. And then as more information came out, people got angrier and more confused and had more questions. And it seemed to escalate and get worse to a point where everyone started almost... um, for the first time, maybe feeling like they had a an opportunity to speak up and and voice their displeasure with the whole with the whole thing and with the culture. And, and I, I'm glad you brought that up. Talk about the culture. There is that feeling in this country that hockey culture is different than soccer culture or basketball culture, and we can see it across neighborhoods all across Canada, Teresa. That basketball and soccer have grown hugely in popularity, and more and more families are being turned off by hockey from the cost and the culture. How do we change that? Well, I think it happens in in a bunch of ways, but it has to happen from the top down and from the bottom up. And I think you have to approach it in in both directions. And I think as we move through this whole process, a lot of what we have been feeling at the grassroots level was almost validated by the fact that it is happening throughout. It wasn't just us. It's not just our communities. So I really think that people need to be able to voice their opinions. There needs to be differences of thought at the highest level, but also listen to people at the grassroots, how, how things are affecting them, and allow them to voice the solutions for the problems that are happening. A great point. Thrilled to be speaking to Teresa Bailey from Canadian Hockey Moms. Get more details at CanadianHockeyMoms.ca. Before we get into more details about what you do and Canadian Hockey Moms, the, the big story now is where do they go from here? I said on Twitter that I think Sheldon Kennedy should be part of the new board of directors. They need new faces, uh, a new outlook on how they approach the game of hockey and Hockey Canada in general. Where do they go from here in your opinion for this new management, new Hockey Canada from now on? Well, it's going to be interesting to see how this interim committee that is put together and who actually selects that. I don't know much about it. I've been Mm -hmm. trying to find out, but I think there's lots of questions around it. So what happens there? And then how I would suspect they will have more, um, more nominations than ever before for the board. So how is that going to roll out? And 
and who gets to choose that. And then also maybe there are working groups or advisory uh, committees along the way that help. And I think there probably have been in the past, but really what does that look like and who has a say in it? So I, I feel like there are lots of questions, but we, I, whatever the process is, I think it has to be transparent and they have to tell us who is on the interim committee and how it was chosen. And if they do anything other than that, then we're going to go right back to square one. And, and fortunately, Teresa, we have the World Juniors coming up and this incredible kid from out west, Connor Bedard, who's the next big thing in hockey. And people will look at the World Juniors differently this year and won't have the same passion, I don't think. Well, it's possible. And that's the sad part is that it, 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 as it often happens in hockey, adults making bad decisions impact on the kids and the players playing it. Yeah, And I think... Um, I really hope that we can get back to the actual love of hockey and and that's why we're all involved and can sort through this stuff and and keep the focus on where it's supposed to be and uh, and not on scandal. So I don't know, hopefully we can make some changes by then and and shift the perspective by making real change. But tell us more about Canadian Hockey Moms. You have a great website, CanadianHockeyMoms.ca. Tell us about what you do and, and I think how it's making a big impact in the sport in this country. Well, I started it around, uh, I actually started it during the Vancouver Olympics when my oldest son was uh, just getting started in rep hockey. And I had some experiences in hockey on both sides of the coin, where my son had received one shift in a game at barely seven years old. And then on the other side, the best players on that team were getting yelled at by parents from the other team because they were so good. Hmm. So trying to sort through those things when you're a new parent in hockey, and I've been around the culture for my whole life, was really frustrating and confusing. So I started a website to ask other moms how they handled it. So I wasn't giving advice or necessarily voicing my opinion at that point. I was asking questions. So for the past 12 years, that's what I've done. I've taken people's questions and put put them out to the group and developed a community around that. And in the meantime, having served as the president of an association and then on an executive of a AAA association, and then through the process of talking to all the moms in writing a book, I think I feel like I'm confident having an opinion now about some of these things. So really, we ask other people's questions, try to pull people together, and, and teach rational thought through this whole process. And I love it. It's, it's really practical things. What kind of food to feed your child before they go to the rink? And that's important. Maybe what kind of music they should listen to so mentally they're in the right mindset. And I think that's really helpful for a lot of people because maybe they are not sure about that. Well, my whole other work world, I, I do corporate training. I work on corporate culture and team culture. So those things come natural to me. I used to, I used to want to be a sports psychologist. So <laughs> I'm always thinking about the mental aspects of the game and of the importance of raising a whole child and not just focusing on sport. And I think those are the things that moms are really worried about and how to keep the house moving and your kids healthy while supporting their passion for hockey. So those are the types of things that we work through. Well, you should be commended, Teresa, because CanadianHockeyMoms.ca has more sponsors on it on their website than Hockey Canada does now. Think about that. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure... I'm not sure that's a good thing, but <laughs> I, I do appreciate the people that we've been able to work with. And No, I, I think it's great. And, and the reason I ask this, Teresa, it, it's the moms. It's, as you say, the grassroots. It's the volunteers. It's the people who take their kids, who sacrifice holidays, who maybe put too much mileage on their minivan 
so they can be part of hockey, so their sons and daughters can play the sport that they love and enjoy the experience no matter where they end up. And that, to me, is the big shame of what's happened with Hockey Canada. Forget the sponsors. I just worry about the average Canadian. It's like a slap in the face to them, and that's what hurt me. Yeah, I agree. And, I mean, if you look at my own path, I started the website anonymously knowing, and I can't tell you how many times I've apologized for talking to a coach about something that needed to be talked about hmm. and saying, I'm sorry, you don't, I know you don't want to talk to the moms, but it is us who are getting the kids to the rink a lot of the time, and every player has a mom. And we have not been able to speak up or have a voice, and this has been my gentle way of trying to help people get through all of that and it is impacting our kids and that's the stuff that really weighs on moms well Teresa, it's people like you that are making a positive difference for hockey and this sport in this country as we go forward thank you so much for doing this and thank you for everything you do with canadian hockey moms i really appreciate you joining me my pleasure thanks for having me after the break banning rescue dogs from entering canada it's a sad tale Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back. Animal rescue groups across our nation are still reeling from the Canadian Food Inspection Agency's recent ban on the entry of commercial dogs from countries considered to be at risk for rabies. Canines around the world living in deplorable conditions, abused, neglected, starved, injured, and in some cases tortured, will no longer be allowed to come to Canada as rescues on mercy flights and into the arms of loving families willing to adopt these deserving dogs and give them a new leash on life. Dr. Scott Bainbridge is a highly respected GTA vet whose mission is to make the world a better place for our four-legged friends. Viva Tam is a passionate animal rights advocate and board chair Golden Rescue. They join us now on the feed. Thank you both for being on the show. It means so much to all of us who are very concerned about these animals around the world that have no place to go now, at least not Canada. Dr. Scott Bainbridge, first question. What is this ban about, and is there anything to it? Is there any truth to it? I mean, yeah, I mean, we all believe in keeping human health our number one priority, and then there have been, unfortunately, cases where Dogs have been imported to North America with rabies in the past, and obviously that is something that we can never allow to happen. So, I mean, the, 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 the ban is there for a reason. Um, we just were kind of hoping that there wouldn't be a blanket ban, that they would look at each individual rescue group uh, on their own kind of protocols and look at what standards we have, and uh, the ones that were doing a good job and, and having, uh, having high standards being continued to, 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 to do the importing. And Scott, this has everything to do with rabies or or the fear that these dogs are going to bring rabies in. And there's a quote from you, our vaccine and monitoring protocols are meticulous and we have been extremely successful in saving the lives of many dogs without a single case of rabies. Yes, we've we've brought in over 1,700 dogs at this point, and uh, yeah, we have never imported a case of rabies, and we are very, very particular with our standards. We make sure our dogs are fully vaccinated, obviously, for rabies and other diseases, but we go above and beyond that. We actually run rabies titers on these dogs before they come over to show that if even they were exposed, that they would have enough antibodies to protect themselves from getting them. You are on the board of Golden Rescue, and that's so important, and the board chair now joins us, Viva Tam. Thank you. And how does this affect your ability to bring in uh, dogs that desperately need to be rescued? Well, the, the, the reality is that we can't. And 
and it's a travesty because we have willing adopters. We have people who are, are as you mentioned in your opening, are, are willing and able to welcome uh, rescues from around the world with open arms. And we just can't do that anymore. And it's, uh, it's, it is truly a travesty because these dogs are going to suffer and die. And on their website, the CFIA, they talk about the countries that are considered high risk for rabies. And quite a few of them, Viva, are countries where you have rescued dogs and brought them to Canada. That's got to be a big, big problem. Well, for us it is because the two countries that we have been primarily rescuing from are Egypt and Turkey, and they are on the list. So that uh, pretty much uh, um, puts the brakes on our rescuing ability. So, Scott, tell me the protocol. When a, a dog, let's say through Golden Rescue, because they do magnificent work around the world, as we know, what's the protocol? A dog is rescued from a situation, let's say, on the streets of Cairo. What happens next? And tell me about the vetting, the veterinary work that sure. takes place before they board a Mercy flight. So the, uh, the dogs, once they arrive in the shelter in Cairo, they're then, uh, they're then uh, given a physical exam. Uh, we get blood drawn. We, we are specifically looking for um, uh, zoonotic diseases, diseases that can be passed on to people like brucellosis, leishmaniasis, and so we're, we're very careful to screen for those. But we also look at the, the dog's health as well. We uh, run a, a full uh, complementary profile to see if they're uh, you know, are they in good health, kidney function, liver function. Uh, we check for tick-borne disease, which is very common over there. And uh, in some cases, they need it. We even start them on um, appropriate treatments before they get on the flight. And what about rabies? We we run a rabies titer on the dog, so everyone's fully vaccinated as soon as they come into the shelter, uh, including rabies and distemper. We then uh, run a titer on the dogs just before they come over, and again, the titer is uh, to show that the antibody levels are high enough in the dog system that they would be protected if exposed to rabies. So I'm going to ask both of you, I don't understand then if all of these protocols are in place, all of these veterinary uh, uh, shots and, and, and prevention methods, techniques are in place for these animals, why did the CFIA put this ban in place? Well, I think that not everyone has the same standards as we do. And so rather than look at each rescue group individually, they, they did this blanket ban just to, to, just to shut everything down. And our hope is that we're now going to go back and look at each individual rescue and make exemptions. I want you to paint us a picture, Viva, of, of what it's like for the animals that are being rescued from just deplorable living conditions. So if you are comfortable telling us what it is that they've suffered and then... If you can describe what it's like when they land normally at Pearson Airport, and there are quite a few of them and these wonderful human beings waiting with open arms, describe the worst and then the best for, for Golden Rescue. Well, uh, um, fellow board members and I have been to Turkey and, uh, and Egypt to visit the shelters that we work with. We wanted to do our due diligence. And the ones in the shelter, I have to say, are the lucky ones. They are the ones who at least are, you know, what I would call safe, although it's no life to live in a shelter in, in either of those uh, countries. Um, but the ones that, uh, you know, if they're at capacity, they just can't take any more dogs into their shelter. And we've just seen just some terrible, terrible situations, dogs that are lying on the side of the road and they are you know, they have broken limbs, they can't move, um, you know, children are pelting stones at them and they can't get away because 
they, they they're not mobile they can be covered in ticks they're starving uh we found jake um who was as somebody had tossed on top of a garbage heap and he was literally not you know almost not breathing he, he was as thin as a rail you could see every single rib in his in his body he was infested with ticks um we brought him to canada some you know months later obviously without ticks and and having put put on a little bit of weight but you should see him now he's just an adorable mm. happy goofball um and and we've like as Scott mentioned we have brought over 1700 it's actually almost 1900 now but um we brought them to Canada and every single flight we have uh, most of the families are there to meet the flights and when the crate doors open, there is not a dry eye. I mean, we could have up uh, upwards of a hundred people there, you know, with all their family, and uh, and it's it, it is such an emotional day for everyone that people are crying. They are so happy to see their new family members, and 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 I have to say that even the cargo guys have had tears in their uh, tears in their eyes, and they've actually brought their families to see this because it's such a beautiful emotional lovely sight to see that they are um now going to be safe and loved viva and scott what can people do to make a difference what have you put together for us to be able to climb on board and try to find modifications in this ban you know i, I think probably the the number one thing people could do right now is to, to write their mp and just uh say you're a supporter of, of golden rescue and uh to see if we can amend or get an exemption to the band at this point and viva um i i think that uh you know reaching out to the media people like you Anne, who are uh, staunch uh, supporters of rescue um getting media attention we cannot take the pressure off the cfia we're, as Scott mentioned, um, we don't necessarily want the ban to be rescinded, but we do want it to be amended and for us to have a seat at the table. Um, we will continue to fight this with every inch of our being, but we need we need the rest of the world, uh, the rest of uh, the rescue community and people who love animals in general to help us and write, as Scott mentioned, write the MPs, write the Prime Minister, write the CFIA, do anything that you think you can do to help. You've put together a new social media campaign. It offers stories about the many successful rabies-free rescues, and you encourage dog owners right across our nation to share with the CFIA their own amazing adoption stories. It's called Hashtag Amend the Ban. Can you expand on that, Aviva? It, it is a social media campaign. It is, it is not just Twitter, but Facebook, actually all the social media platforms. We want to we want the world at large and the CFIA also to see that the, 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 the goldens that we're bringing in are not dangerous. Um, you know, some of them are unhealthy when we get here, but usually quite fixable. And, and obviously, if they're limping, we give them, you know, surgeries to, to help them. But we've had, as I mentioned, um, you know, between 17 and 1900 success stories where these goldens are now living an absolutely incredibly happy life and and i would hazard a guess to say that probably 70 to 90 percent of them if we had left them where they were they would be dead by now and scott you've got the floor right now what do you say to the cfia 
Well, I mean, I, I think the CFIA needs to kind of uh, look at just each rescue group individually and, and look at the protocols in place. And I 100% agree with them that the, 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 the rescue groups that don't have high standards, that needs to change for sure. But I think that the, the groups like us who do have high standards, I think they, they need to make exemptions for us at this point. And probably my biggest worry, Ann, is that uh, I just look at my number of dogs I saw in the clinic this morning, and I'd say probably saw three or four rescue dogs all brought over here before the ban was in place from countries are on that list and so uh, international adoption is, is a huge huge area for, for people in, in Ontario to get their dogs from and if that shuts down I know it's going to encourage backyard breeding it's going to encourage more dogs coming from Kijiji this kind of area because um, because we do get a lot of dogs that are, are finding great homes over here from these countries. I want to thank you both for your time for your energy for your compassion it is hashtag amend the ban Please go to Golden Rescue's website and also uh, Scott Bainbridge. You can check out your clinic information as well. You both are terrific. Thank you so much for joining us on the feed. Thank you so much, Anne. Next, how the Humane Society and Ontario SPCA are paying tribute to animals in war. Glenn Perkins with that story. The Ontario SPCA and Humane Society want us to also commemorate the animals who have served and continue to serve alongside Canada's veterans. Joining me is Alison Cross, Vice President, Marketing and Communications for Ontario SPCA and Humane Society. Alison, welcome. Thank you for having me. Where did the idea for these pins come from? Well, we first launched the pins back in 2017 as a way to honor the animals that served alongside our veterans. Animals had a big part in our war times, and we wanted to recognize that and honor them in the same way that we might honor veterans. Tell me about the animals in war, Pin. How many are there, and what are the animals? So we've had a variety of different pins over the years. We've had everything from a horse, a dog, a pigeon, a cat, as well as a limited edition pin in honor of women who served in Canada's military. We now are offering this year the dog, the pigeon, and the cat. These can all be purchased at ontariospca.ca slash remember. Alison, why these four animals? You know, animals had a variety of different ways they helped served in the time of war. Anywhere from horses, transported troops, pigeons delivered crucial messages, cats, served as companion animals, but also kept ships free of vermin. And dogs, of course, they served as messengers, medical assistants, bomb detectors, and search and rescue workers. So we wanted to find ways that we can honor each of these types of animals and also just uh, recognize that the commitment that they provided to our Canadian military. Now, are these to be worn alongside the poppy? These pins are to be worn alongside the poppy. And I should say that $1 of each pin sold will be donated to the Royal Canadian Legion branches in communities where our animal centres reside. This is a great way to not only support veterans, but also animals that need your organization's care. Exactly. So the, the rest of the proceeds of the pin will support Ontario SPCA animal centres across the province, providing care for animals in need. We have 12 locations across the province, 
Uh, one just outside of Newmarket in Stillville, our York Region Animal Center there. And these uh, animal centers serve our communities, helping people care for their pets, helping the pets look for new homes, and also providing care and uh, needs for the community when it comes to animals. Alison Cross, Vice President, Marketing and Communications for Ontario SPCA and Humane Society. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Now over to Shaliza Backus with a special honor for Ryan Reynolds. Scouts Canada is the country's leading co-ed youth organization, and they surveyed their members to definitively name Canada's most scout badge-worthy celebrities of 2022, and they had to explain why they deserved the declaration. Now, this list is super cool and actually kind of fun. And to tell us more about this, I'm joined by Mike Eibel, volunteer for Scouts Canada. How are you, Mike? I'm very well today. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, this is this is so cool. This was trending all over social media, so why don't you tell me about this Scout Badge-worthy list? Absolutely. So I think this is a kind of a really, really fun fun campaign for us to do because, I mean, of course, we, we, we know that our youth are really good at things, um, but we thought it would be a great opportunity to kind of look at who else in Canada and maybe some of our celebrities we can look towards uh, to see what they're good at. And, of course, we know what they're good at because they're famous for it, but maybe some of the other things that are lesser known uh, and we can kind of look to recognize some of their not-so-prominent uh, features and not so prominent accomplishments and uh, and how that really speaks to you know discovering your thing and, uh, and and you know creating a better world. Now before we get into the actual list, what was the idea behind this and why was it important? Uh, well, I think that that public figures, of course, they've they've found their thing publicly, right? Uh, but but they've also demonstrated admirable qualities that inspire Canadians in different ways. And so this was really about celebrating the uh, the, the success of, and, and really maybe using the celebrities as a microcosm for the rest of society or the rest of the you know us non-famous folk uh, uh, to kind of recognize you know there's some truly great qualities that we have as people, and so you know there should be a badge for that, right? And so we kind of played some uh, uh, had some fun. And, and kind of looked at a, a whole bunch of celebrities to see what uh, which ones were you know badge worthy. That is so cool. And all of the the members of Scouts Canada, they voted on these people. Yeah, so we looked at the internal, like uh, all of our membership to kind of say, I mean, of course, we give badges out inside scouting all the time, uh, and so we thought, you know, who best to say who should get a badge than you know our own membership. Yes, I love that. All right, so let's start with with the top honor. So 2022's most scout badge worthy Canadian celebrity. Who is that? Most badge worthy of all was Autumn Peltier. Anishinaabe leader, uh, water protector, climate activist, uh, so notably, and, and of course in scouting, we, we, we definitely have these, these strong values. Uh, and so really, really great to see that, that Autumn was the, uh, you know, the, the rising or, or the rising tide badge uh, went, to, uh, went to them. Yes, and she was actually only 12 years old. Just a little bit of backstory. She was only 12 years old when she met with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau to uh, talk about his promise to protect the water. And she's just been an advocate for clean drinking water and made such a difference at such a young age, which I think is is amazing. And of course, we want to get into Ryan Reynolds, the quintuple threat. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I love I love that, that, that Autumn kind of brings this the, the, the most awarded in, in this because that's such a huge a huge value uh, in kind of making the world a better place is so scouting uh, and, and especially youth making 
the world a better place. And in Scouts, we really believe that youth are capable of anything. And so, uh, um, you know, and, and everyone's great at something, right? So, so you know, Scouts youth are given the opportunity to experience those new things, explore different skills, and then, and then truly hone in and discover their thing. And, and Autumn, at 12 years old, back in 2016, certainly, certainly is, is fantastic in that. Um, but, of course, there's more than one celebrity, and, and Ryan Reynolds as a quintuple threat is, is a fierce competition, for sure. <laughs> I mean, who wants to compete with Ryan Reynolds? Is there really any, any competition with him? Well, apparently the new Deadpool movie, we've got Hugh Jackman next to Ryan Reynolds, and that looks just absolutely phenomenal. So I'm kind of, I'm interested to see what that looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's interesting that you mentioned that because uh, 10, about 10% of, of scouts voted him the most marvelous anti-hero because he does play his role in Deadpool. Absolutely, absolutely. But I mean, I, and I think Ryan in, in, in all of the thing, I mean, whether it's Deadpool or, or, or you know, some of his other uh, business acronym, uh, it, he, he's just, he's a sarcastic, funny, but always positive person. And like that really, to me, like Ryan would, I, I don't know if he was ever a scout. Uh, and I don't know if he'd ever want to volunteer with scouting. But that level of humor, that like overcoming things and, and quick wit and sarcasm and, and making things positive, even though maybe they're not so positive at times. Uh, and just keeping that positive humor to things. It's just so fantastic. Exactly. And honestly, Mike, I could talk about this list all day. We've got Celine Dion on there, Sandra Oh, Elliot Page, Dan Levy. But another one that I'm super excited about is this girl from Markham, Ontario. She's from York Region, Iman Vellani, a.k.a. Miss Marvel. She was awarded the badge of Marvelous Rookie, which I think is really cool. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, definitely, you know, being cast in like a high profile television show in her teens certainly embodies, you know, what the power of youth could be, right? As young people, you know, they can take center stage and, and just absolutely own it. And and sometimes the marvelous rookie is is, you know, the the show stopping winner, right? Definitely. We love to hear that. Now, if we want to check out this entire list, where can we go? Uh, you can visit the Scouts Canada website, so that's uh, scouts.ca. Uh, and actually, if you really want to get uh, specific down to the page, scouts.ca slash badgeworthycelebs. Uh, we'll get you kind of to all of the all of the celebrities that, that are in there, and even down to like the percentages of where if we're, we're crunching numbers, but some fantastic people on this list that really kind of embody that scouting spirit, right? Celebrating youth who kind of, you know, made these achievements or made, our, made achievements in their kind of personal growth and leadership. And of course, going outside and doing that in an outdoor setting. Yes, we love to hear that. And this is actually really cool. I didn't know this, but you guys are going to be sending a physical badge to all of these recipients? We are, yeah. There are actually, there's pictures of all of the different badges that we've created. And yeah, we're going to send them out. We're going to send them out to everybody. And uh, they're a bit one-of-a-kind. They're one-of-a-kind badges. It's not like, you know, they're not available for, uh, uh, you know, for mass production. Uh, but you know what, these, these people are really fantastic. And they've done some really fantastic things, both in their, you know, you know public persona or how they've got to their success. Uh, but, but, but all of these individuals on this list have, have, you know, great things outside of what made them famous. And that is totally bad. Worthy. And you know what? They need to get the badge. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what I love most about this list, all of these celebrities, they are definitely role models and people who are in the Scouts program would definitely want to look up to them because they represent Canada on a world stage and they're definitely possess qualities that 
you would want to have in a scout. It, it really is, yeah. So it's those like those developmental skills that are transferable for life: problem solving, resiliency, resourcefulness, confidence, adaptability, collaborating with others. I mean, these are all things that that in scouts we do, uh, you know, to to for, with various things, whether it's, you know, an outdoor canoe trip or, or maybe it's, you know, something really cool and STEMI within, uh, within a weekly section meeting. And, and, and these, these celebs are just totally rocking it on all of, those, all of those criteria. Love it. Love to hear it. Once again, if you want some more information, you can visit scouts.ca. Mike Eibel, thank you so much for joining me. I hope to make the list one day. Thanks so much for sure. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.